grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. This morning, I want you to think about a time that you were physically lost, like turned around, don't know where you are, kind of lost. I was thinking about this that this week, and I thought about a time when I was a little kid and I got lost in the most terrifying place for a little kid to get lost in, Walmart. Yes, I was walking, I was certain my mom was behind me, but sure enough, I turn around, she's gone. And that's when sheer panic descended. I thought, I'm never going to be found. This is an endless maze of aisles. It was, it was terrible. I think about another time when uh, me and my teenage friends got lost in the woods. I grew up on a dead-end street, and we had this area behind our house that we simply called the woods. And my friends and I would go back there, and we'd explore and look around. And one day we went too far. We got to that point where we started passing the same tree. We're like, okay, we've seen that five times now. Has that ever happened to you? It's scary. You're lost. Some of you have experienced the days when you could actually get lost driving. If you got around with paper maps and asking the guy at the gas station where to turn next, if you did that, I want you to know I have the utmost respect for you. I am so happy. I don't know how you did it. I'm so happy that when I started driving, those guys at Garmin, those really smart guys over there, were developing those GPS things you could put in your car because I have no sense of direction. Like, I stay on Google Maps when I'm driving. I would not have survived another time period. I would have went out for lunch, and you would have had to send search and rescue to get me back. It's bad. It's bad. It's a scary thing to be lost, to not know where you are. To look around and be utterly confused and hopeless. And and one of the things we're going to see as we continue walking through the book of Revelation is that as history marches on, we are going to increasingly be tempted to feel this way as Christians. We're going to look around and feel more and more out of place. Things are going to get hard and confusing and we're going to wonder, what's the point of all this? Where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? And we will be tempted to feel lost and abandoned. But thankfully, God has given us a map. He's given us a compass, a GPS, if you will, to guide us and keep us focused in the right direction. And that compass is his word. And there is no better example of that than the book of Revelation. The very first words of the book tell us that this is a revelation from Jesus given to us to show us the things that must soon take place. The revelation was written to struggling, suffering Christians who needed a guide. They needed a compass to keep them moving forward. And in the book of Revelation, the true north of this compass, the very place where the needle points, is Revelation chapters 4 and 5. These two chapters are, I believe, the key to the entire book. Because after these two chapters, things are going to get bonkers, okay? (laughs) Love that word. What the Apostle John is going to see is going to be downright disturbing, confusing, and terrifying. So God gives him this key vision to keep him grounded. To keep him focused in the right direction. And he gives us this same vision for the same reason. 
So no matter what happens around us, we have a compass keeping us pointed in the right way. We have a vision to come back to time and time again to remind us what's important and what's true and what's foundational. So these two chapters, they're, they're the bedrock of this book and this message series, which is why we broke it into two parts and two messages. If you were here last week, you heard the first. We, we covered Revelation chapter 4 and the first half of the vision. And I want to encourage you, if you missed that sermon, to go back and listen to it online or on the app so you can stay up to date with where we are. But what we saw, if you were here, is that John received a vision of heaven. He saw God seated on his throne. And he attempts to describe this vision and all this amazing language. And, and he's just kind of blown away by the beauty, majesty, and glory of God. He sees the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and they're all worshiping God. But the point of last week was that we need to remember that image of God on his throne. We need to make sure we don't forget that God is in control. He is holy and sovereign and worthy of our worship. That was Revelation 4 in the first part of the vision. And now we're going to look at the second part, which is Revelation 5, as we continue our series called Fear Not. So turn there with me, and I want to invite you to please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the, the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And, and when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And we say together with them, Amen. You can be seated. 
To be totally honest, I think we could stop right there. We could go home. <laughs> I mean, that, that is so awesome. Uh, but, you know, they pay me for 30 minutes. So I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few things. Um, <laughs> but as we, as we break down this passage, l- let me give you three places that we can look in times of trouble based on Revelation 5. Here's the first. First, we need to look to the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. After John sees God seated on his throne, being worshipped, he sees a scroll in his right hand. And there's two things we learn about this scroll. Number one, it's filled with writing. And number two, it's sealed with seven seals. You'll remember that numbers in Revelation have a lot of meaning. Uh, The number seven is the number of completion. So what this means is that this scroll is as sealed as sealed gets. It's completely sealed. This scroll is is commonly referred to as the scroll of destiny because as it is opened, we will see that it contains God's plan for the future. It contains God's judgments and acts that bring in the consummation of the world. So this is a really important piece of paper. Then John sees an angel yelling out with a loud voice. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one could do it. No one on earth or under the earth or anywhere. It's a poetic way of saying it. Absolutely no one could open the scroll. And look at how John responds. Did you see that? He weeps loudly. He cries. Why is John so sad that the scroll cannot be opened? Well, let's think about that. We said that this scroll is the scroll of destiny. This scroll contains God's plan to bring history to a close. So all these things that John understood needed to happen, God dealing with evil and Jesus coming back and his people being restored to him, all of that could not happen unless someone opened the scroll. This was so important. And a scroll this important can only be opened by someone equally important. And yet John saw no one. No one was worthy of ushering God's plan in to restore the world. Think about how many people have walked this planet. Think about how many great people have lived and done incredible things. Yet none of them were worthy to open the scroll. Think about the political powers who have shaped world history for better or worse. Napoleon, Hitler, Churchill, Lincoln, the Founding Fathers, Queen Elizabeth, despite their power and prestige, they were not worthy to open the scroll. Think about the wealthy people of world history. Bill Gates, Henry Ford, Rockefeller, King Solomon. Despite their immense wealth, they were not worthy to open the scroll. Think about those who have done great good for society and the world, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, despite their good deeds, they were not worthy to open the scroll. Think about those who have started and spread world religion, Muhammad, Buddha, all these great popes of history, the Dalai Lama, I still don't know what he does, but despite their religious influence, they were not worthy to open the scroll. Think about the great thinkers and philosophers of history, Plato, Aristotle, Confucius, C.S. Lewis. Despite their great minds, they were not worthy to open the scroll. 
Think about the famous Bible characters we learn so much about and revere. Abraham, Moses, Mary Magdalene, David, Paul, Esther. Despite their incredible faith, they were not worthy to open the scroll. Think about the great Christians of history, Martin Luther, Augustine, Bonhoeffer, Billy Graham. Despite their influence for Christ, they were not worthy to open the scroll. Are you getting my drift? Do I need to keep going and list like 100 more dead people or what? (laughs) The point is that we as humanity, no matter what we may accomplish or possess, we are not and never will be worthy enough to fix or save the world. We may do many good things and influence millions of people, but on our own, we cannot save anyone, much less ourselves. We are simply not worthy. And that disappointment should cause us to feel what John felt. Because of our sin, we're separated from God and we can't fix it. We are doomed, hopeless, helpless. We can't open the scroll. But it's in this moment that one of the elders speaks to John and says in verse 5, he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Weep no more. Like There's no reason to cry anymore over our helpless state because despite our failure, There is someone who can and will open the scroll, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and usher in God's plan for humanity and the world. Jesus can open the scroll because of who he is. The Bible tells us he is fully God, meaning that all the glory we just saw on the throne is in him. All the power, all the beauty is his because he is God. But he's also fully man. He took on a human body and felt all the things we feel. And despite facing the same temptations we do, he never sinned. But the elder introduces Jesus with two titles we may not be as familiar with. They both connect Jesus to the Messiah of the Old Testament. First, he calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It comes from Genesis 49 where Jacob is blessing his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he gets to Judah, he calls him a lion's cub. And he prophesies that his family is going to be powerful and they're going to rule and have this authority. And guess who came from that family line? Jesus did. Jesus is the lion of Judah, which speaks to the power and authority and right he has to rule over all creation. Second, the elder introduces Jesus as the root of David. This is a reference from Isaiah 11 where Isaiah prophesies that a king is going to come up from the line of David. And guess who came from the line of David? Jesus did. Jesus is the root of David, the one who will rule God's people forever. So these two references remind us that Jesus is the one all of history longs for. There has never been and never will be anyone else like him. That's what the elder is telling John. He doesn't say, hey, cheer up, man. We're going to get through this. Or, hey, man, just believe in yourself and you can open the scroll of destiny. (laughs) No, he says, weep no more. Wipe those tears off your face because the one we've been looking for is here. 
Jesus is the answer to all our problems. He will make all this right again. He will save us because he will open the scroll. So in times of trouble, we look to the person of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus is a person? It sounds like a, a silly question, but really I think sometimes we, we think of Jesus as, as like a robot or angel or, or just something different than us. Like because he's God and he's in heaven, he can't be like us. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he is like us. He's human like us. He's a person and the Bible says he's a friend of sinners. Do you ever think of Jesus as your friend? What I'm getting at is when we think of Jesus helping us in our time of need, yes, it, it helps to think of how powerful and high and lifted up he is. That's comforting. But don't miss the fact that he's also close like a friend. He wants to help us. He wants to carry these burdens with us. So, so I mean, who else could we possibly want or need in our time of trouble but Jesus? He, he's strong enough and powerful enough to save us, but he's also gentle and caring enough to comfort us. He's the one we've been looking for. So weep no more. Look to the person of Jesus. Second, we look to the work of Jesus, the work of Jesus. After this loud announcement proclaiming the power and authority of Jesus to open the scroll of destiny, John looks and he sees a lamb. Did you notice he, he hears about a lion, but he looks and sees a lamb. It's a little strange. But let's notice some things about this lamb. For one, hopefully we know by now, the lamb is Jesus. John is, uh, Jesus is referred to as the lamb in John's gospel all throughout the book of Revelation. But, but why? Why is Jesus called a lamb? Well, it's a little gruesome. Jesus is called a lamb because lambs get slaughtered. See, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to sacrifice a lamb each year at Passover to, to remind them of the exodus when God brought them out of Egypt. So a lamb became a symbol of sacrifice. And Jesus fulfilled that through his sacrifice on the cross. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But here's the second thing we notice here. The lamb is standing as though it had been slain. Growing up in, in Tennessee, a lot of my friends like to go hunting. I know some of you, maybe you enjoy going hunting. Um, have you ever seen a slain animal standing up? <laughs> if you do, run away. You may be in a zombie movie. I don't know. <laughs> but this lamb is slain and yet standing. This is a paradox. It's a symbol of victory through sacrifice. See, that's what the Passover symbolized. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He achieved victory through sacrifice, life through death. And we see that through the slain lamb. He's standing ready for action. Which leads to the third thing we see here. This slain lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. My family and I, we love to go to the Deanna Rose uh, homestead and play with all the animals and whatnot. Um, but I've never seen a lamb like this there. The number seven, remember, it represents completion. 
and, and horns were a symbol of military might and eyes were a symbol of, of knowledge. So this tells us that Jesus has the fullness of power and he knows, he sees all things. That's what the, the meaning is behind the horns and the eyes. And the last thing for us to notice about the lamb is he's standing among the elders. Last week we established that the elders represent the church, the people of God, and this is where Jesus stands. He stands with his people as the head of his people. We have been united with him. The lamb is not above us. He's not away from us. He's with us and for us. Man, so much good stuff here. But John sees the lamb do something. He walks up to the throne and he takes the scroll. And when he does, the elders and living creatures begin to worship. They, they sing a new song. And here's what it says. Look at verse 9 again. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In this song of worship, we see the ultimate reason that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Look at what they say. For you were slain. They don't say it's because of who Jesus is or his miracles or that he fulfilled prophecy or even he was, he was resurrected. They say it's because he was slain. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his death, he is uniquely qualified to bring human history to its appointed end. He has been granted all authority and power in the world and it's because of the cross. But what was so significant about that day on the cross? Jesus was not the first or the last person to die on a cross. In fact, two other people died there right next to him in the same way. But one of the ways that scriptures, Scripture helps us to understand what happened on the cross is by using a word we just saw. It's the word ransom. We see that in verse 9. Jesus ransomed people by his blood. Typically, when we think of that word today, we think about kidnapping. But in the first century, the idea was a little different. It was, it, for them, ransom was a payment made to purchase someone out of slavery. And this is where this all connects. The Bible tells us that because of our sin, we have become slaves. We are in bondage to sin and evil, totally consumed by it, deserving of God's judgment. Romans 6.23 says that sin has a price. The, the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. That's the price of your sin and my sin. And no matter what we do or how hard we try, we cannot buy our way out of slavery. We can't afford the ransom payment. But Jesus can. And on the cross, he paid the ransom to set us free. And the payment he made was his very life. He said in Mark 10.45 that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt that you owed for your sin. So often we, we focus on the physical torture of the cross. And we think about the thorns and the whip and the nails. And no doubt the, the, the physical pain would have been unimaginable. And crucifixion was designed to be the most humiliating and painful way possible to die. But the physical pain of the cross does not compare to the spiritual suffering that Jesus experienced. See, in order for him to pay the ransom, he had to pay all of it for all of his people. 
Think about it. If the cost of one person's sin is an eternity in hell, what would the cost be of billions of people's sin? That amount of judgment and wrath and punishment is what was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That is the horror of the cross. Jesus paid our ransom by his blood. Here's the thing about a a ransom. Once it's been paid, it's done. The ransom person gets to remove the shackles and walk away free. That's why Jesus said, it it is finished. We don't owe anything else for our sin. We're free. And we weren't free just to be peasants in the streets of heaven. No, verse 10 tells us we're free to be a kingdom, to be priest to God and to reign with the Son. We have been free to be with God, to be his people, to eat at his table and live in his house. So in times of trouble, we look to the work of Jesus. When things get bad, we remember the cross. I heard a pastor say one time that the the cross means that the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, you experiencing the judgment for your sins, it's already happened and it happened to Jesus. The cross means no matter what happens, no, no matter how crazy things get, things could not be better for us. The glass isn't half full. No, it's overflowing with God's grace. And it's all because of the work of Jesus. Last thing, third, we look to the worth of Jesus. The worth of Jesus. After the elders and creatures sing their song, John then sees angels crying out. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And in the Greek, that simply means it's a whole lot of stinking angels, okay? It's countless angels. And then he sees every creature on the earth and in heaven worshiping the Lamb. I mean, just imagine the sound of this. It's like a thousand arrowhead stadiums filled with people crying out in worship to Jesus. This would just be a deafening outpouring of praise. I think about a concert. Do y'all remember those? If you go to a concert... People cheer for the performers, but there's kind of like different levels of cheering. The, the opening act comes on and people clap a little bit. And the next act comes on and people are maybe a little more excited. And then the, the main act comes on the stage, the one everybody paid all the money to see, and people just go nuts. And at the end of the show, if it was really good and it lived up to its billing, then people are just cheering so much because the performer is worthy of our recognition and honor. So to have a stadium of people cheering for you, man, that, is, that would be quite an honor. But who could possibly be worthy of this level of worship and praise from endless angels and all of heaven and all of creation? Who could possibly deserve this? There's only one, and his name is Jesus. And maybe the most telling part of this whole vision is what God is doing on his throne while Jesus is being praised. Did did you see what he's doing? Nothing. He's not doing anything. Apparently, he's just sitting there, which is quite shocking, especially in Jewish thought. You didn't worship or, or bow down to anyone except God. 
This is the same God who said in Isaiah 42, 8, he said, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. But yet here he is, giving his glory to another. Allowing the angels and all of creation to worship another. And he's not stopping them. That should tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. It is a massive affirmation that Jesus is God and Jesus is worthy. Friends, this is the key to all of Revelation. If we don't get this right here, we can't go any further. Because things are about to get wild. And we're going to read about unimaginable suffering and pain. And if we live to this point in history, we may see it for ourselves. From this point on, nothing will make sense unless we remember that God is on his throne and Jesus is worthy. Like That is our foundation. That is our compass when we get lost. And that is our hope in times of trouble today and forever. Speaking of times of trouble, we're here. I just think about the things we saw in our nation this week, the things we've experienced all year. I think about the hopelessness we saw on display, the anger, the hatred, the idolatry. Guys, this is a chance for us to be different. When we see things like this happening in the world, this is our chance to remind people, to show people where our hope is, that our only hope is in Jesus. It's not in a party, a person, a position, an idea, a movement, anything. It's in Jesus alone. And we have to be different. We cannot bow down to the idols of the world. We cannot replace our faith in Jesus for our faith in something else, our faith in a government or even a country. Our faith is in Jesus. And we cannot spit the hatred and evil, and anger, and divisiveness that the world does. We have to be different. We have to show the world that we are united in Christ. We're united in the fact that God is on his throne, and Jesus is worthy. What an opportunity we have today to do that. I believe in the weeks to come, we're going to have more of that opportunity to say, you know what, I'm not buying into the rage, because I know how the story ends. Things are going to be bad, they're going to get worse, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus is coming back. He is Lord and King over all things, and that is my hope. So just like we did last week, there is only one way we can end a passage like this, and that is to worship Jesus with our voices raised to join in with, with these people, with these, these angels in, in worship of the Lord. So that's what we're going to do. It's like we did last week. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Jeremy to come and lead us in a song, and then I'll come back and close out our service after that. But let me pray for us, and then let's experience Revelation 5 for ourselves. Let's pray.